Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Blue Earth Podcast, which is a part of Future Frogmen, a nonprofit fostering future leaders to protect the ocean. I'm your host, Dr. Colleen Bielitz. Today on our show, we have Dr. Matthias Korkosh, who is the program director of University Center of the West Fjords in Iceland. Welcome to the show, Matthias. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, and how's the weather in Iceland today? Um, it's surprisingly sunny today. And uh, yes, I'm quite happy to see the sun, at, uh, especially after a long, dark winter. And uh, yes, it's a very mild and beautiful day. Oh, good. Well, happy Friday to you. Um, I always like to start our show and talk a little bit about our guests and the pa- their passion and how it began and your work didn't necessarily start with the ocean, but came more from a passion for remote communities, which led into remote Arctic communities. And you had written that although you had enough material to study in your own backyard, remote places in the Arctic spurred your interest from an early age. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Oh, yes, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think I would go very, very far back and blame my parents for this passion. So I think I've been fascinated about the Arctic and remote areas ever since I got the uh, first atlas and maps in, in hand. And um, from a very early age on, I wanted to learn more about the living conditions of, of people in different parts of the world, uh, especially those places that are somewhat um, inhospitable or with harsh conditions. And yeah, I think I've always been interested in how people live in these places, what makes them stay, how do they cope with all these challenges they are facing daily, basically. And uh, yeah, as you said, the weird thing is that I, that I basically grew up in an area that is neither at the coast nor remote or sparsely populated at all. Um, it's, yeah. it's rather a region with a dependency on natural resources and one main industry, uh, yeah. coal mining and steel production. Yeah. And you could rather compare to Detroit, Pittsburgh or <laughs> Rust Belt than to Arctic communities <laughs> if you want to take it like this. And uh, eventually I combined both. I would say these days, uh, my fascination for remote Arctic communities and and the interest in socioeconomic changes in in resource dependent places. So, yeah, yeah. So mm-hmm. let's talk a little bit more about about your background. Uh, for mm-hmm. those that don't know you, you uh, you were originally from Germany, and yes, that's why how you're very familiar with this single single sector economy. And mm-hmm. you know, you also know from where you were living, like you said, it's very similar to Detroit the economic vulnerabilities that increase when you rely on just one specific industry. So I was thinking maybe you could talk a little bit about, uh, you know, being a geographer and a social scientist and the dangers of living in that type of an environment. Yes, exactly. So originally I wanted to become a a teacher for geography and social science, actually. And uh, yeah, this is basically because I, I love to work with other people especially students and to discuss and research community development, discover and develop future scenarios. And for that, it doesn't really matter where you are. You know, I think every place has, has its own difficulties, its own challenges. And so I brought some of my experience from my um, original, or from, from Germany with me, from the Ruhr area to Iceland. And um, yeah, as I said before, I combined all my interests here in Iceland and I'm, I learned what it, a lot what structural changes mean for demographic and socioeconomic development in certain areas and what it means when you lose the mainstay industry and 
when you have to search for new opportunities. So the place where I came from, we had a lot of steel mining, coal industries. It gradually, um, it was gradually closed down. So the subsidies were stopped and uh, these places had to search for new possibilities, new economic opportunities. And that was the biggest challenge. And it was quite interesting to learn firsthand how this happened. And it has always been fascinating for me how this happened. So how a place that has been known only for heavy industries turned into a place where education is more and more important, where culture plays an extremely important aspect. So the area where I'm from is, uh, has been then turned into the cultural capital of uh, Europe in 2010, uh, 2010. So yeah, that was all quite interesting. And yeah, I love to research all these challenges that some resource dependent places are facing have been facing and are facing in the future. You're now in Iceland, which is a Nordic island nation. And for listeners that are not familiar with Iceland, it's a population of roughly about 360,000 people and an area of about 40,000 square miles. So it makes it the most sparsely populated country in Europe. And it's definitely defined by its dramatic landscape with volcanoes and geysers, hot springs, lava field, massive glaciers, right? And most of the population lives in the capital of Reykjavik, which runs on geothermal power. And, you know, I saw uh, two days ago, I was looking at some information on the World Economic Forum, and I saw that Iceland was number two in the world. Uh, Norway took the top spot in its use of green energy. So it had stopped its use of fossil fuels and is relying on that geothermal power. And the other cool thing I think about Iceland when I think about it is the rich Viking history and its breathtaking beauty. Now you started writing about Icelandic fisheries and how small fisheries lost access to the ocean. And this happened because the Icelandic fish stocks underwent privatization in 1990 when existing fishing quotas were made fully transferable. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what happened in Iceland in the 1990s and then how people who made a living off the ocean had to adapt. Yeah, sure. Um, but I think uh, we need to go back a little bit in time. So maybe all the way to 1900, when we want to understand what happened in 1990. Um, so in 1900, I would say the industrialization of the fishing industry took place in Iceland, or it started basically in Iceland. And from then on, fisheries became the most important industry in Iceland. So in the 30s, 1900, in the 1930s, the herring adventure started. A lot of communities in the northern part of Iceland started to develop. They grow in population numbers. So it was the most important economic um, sector for Iceland. And it continued and continued. So the trawlers got bigger. It was a complete industrialization of the fishing fleet. And uh, basically in the mid 60s, there was the collapse of, uh, of the herring stock it was the first shock in fisheries, I would say. So I, this probably was the first real shocking event for this ever-growing industry, I would say. And um, this was followed by a black report in the mid-1970s, a black report on the state of the cod, or the state of the cod stocks. And this then led to a total allowable catch that was introduced. So basically a, a maximum allowable catch that was um, an annual catch. And in the 1980s, vessel quotas were introduced for um, all demersal species in Iceland. And in 1990, we 
or I spent to introduce the ITQs, the individual transferable coders for almost all demersal and pelagic species. And the most important aspect here is that it's a full privatization of the, of the fisheries. And this of course came with some um, consequences for the communities that based their livelihood on fisheries or that were so heavily dependent on this one particular economic sector. Uh, there were places around the coast where the total employment numbers were 50 to 80% directly related to the fishing industry, to the fishery sector. And um, some companies, some individuals decided to sell out their quotas, make some windfall profits, move to the south or transfer the quotas to other places. And so centralization took place. A lot of places lost their quotas, lost their fishing rights and um, lost their trawlers from the community, which also, of course, had an effect on the land-based jobs. So there were places that lost not only jobs, but then, of course, eventually a lot of people. Out-migration became a big aspect afterwards because these places have been so dependent on one economic sector and having lost this sector literally overnight sometimes, of course, came uh, with a lot of challenges for these places. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, I think, uh, it's eye-opening when you think that there is a plentiful ocean that's just teeming with fish, and then when you know more and more people go out there and catch the fish, and they don't have a chance to replenish, right? Then different types of species kind of you know disappear. And you know, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that you have to go back to the early 1900s to kind of show how things started and then what they led to in the 1990s. Now, here at Future Frogmen, we you know foster future leaders to protect the ocean, and our podcast often touches upon coastal communities and their response to climate change. And you're working with eight other Nordic communities in response to this need. Maybe you could expand what you're doing with these other countries right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yes, you're right. So my research focus shifted a little bit uh, with the start of a new project in January or this January. And even though community resilience is still the main foundation of my, my work, my research. Um, yeah, so it's still my, my, my basic foundation, I would say. And the project is called Click Nord or Climate Change Resilience in Small Communities in the Nordic Countries, a pretty long name. And uh, in this project, we want to examine how small rural communities understand their own situation, how they handle adverse events and build capacity, and under what circumstances they need help from established systems, from the civil society organizations, and what they can do in terms of endogenous strategies as well to um, fight climate change and the effects of climate change. And we want to develop a framework that can be disseminated to other vulnerable communities and authorities as well that deal with climate change resilience or community resilience as well. And we want to enable the small communities and uh, the authorities as well to work together on tasks concerning prevention, preparedness, response and recovery from climate change or climate change effects. And yeah, as you mentioned, we. We are a group of eight institutions from five countries, five Nordic countries. So we have researchers from Denmark uh, that look into Denmark and the Faroe Islands, researchers from Sweden, Norway, and Iceland. And 
the interesting aspect is that we want to include several very different hazards, but hazards that are somewhat related or caused by climate change. And we want to look how they affect local communities across the Nordic countries. And it will be hazards, yeah, as I said before, which can be interpreted as a direct consequence of climate change. And uh, to give you an example, here we'll, in Iceland, we look into avalanches, slush avalanches and mudslides. And the other places look into coastal flooding due to storm surges, wildfires, temperature extremes, I think another one looks also into landslides and, and storms. So yeah, it's, it's quite, quite exciting and it's very interesting to learn from all these different places which challenges they are facing in terms of climate change, how small communities um, fight climate change or the, um, the, the consequences of it. Yeah. And, you know, when researching for this podcast, I thought it was interesting to see how, you know, the severe weather impacts different parts of the world, but especially impacting parts of Iceland. So there were mudslides, uh, actually December 21st of 2020, um, and a whole town had to be evacuated and moved to safety due to the heaviest rains on record. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what needs to be planned out when something like this happens. Yeah, that's that's a very good example that you mentioned. So, um, yeah, when we start or when we were starting this project and uh, wrote the grant application, a lot of things happened which really showed how important this project is. So we had avalanches coming down here in the West Shorts where we are located. But exactly what you named, just before we started the project, a week before that, or around Christmas, uh, the town of Seydesfjord in the East Shorts had to be evacuated. There was a huge mudslide. And the biggest problem is, of course, to predict such, a, such an event, to, say, to see exactly when it might happen, when it will happen, um, what to do. And Iceland is doing fairly well, I would say, in, in risk management. So there's a really good protocol what has to happen uh, when, when the um, alert stage is set on, I would say. And um, the evacuations usually go quite well, but of course, one always has to deal with extreme weathers in these cases, so harsh climates. This town was easy to evacuate because it has not been that much snow before. So um, the rescue team had wide and easy access, but most communities in Iceland just have one road out of the town. They are in fjords, which are not necessarily easily accessible, especially during winter time. Of course, you have to search a place where you can ev evacuate and a complete or an entire community too. We talk about places that have between 200 up to 800 people in most cases in these fjord communities. So it is, of course, a big um, challenge, a big big task to evap evacuate these places, sometimes for several days in a row. And um, that makes it quite quite difficult and tough. And of course, you have to take care of the prevention there. What can you do in the future to prevent these um, events or avoid these consequences? But it is extremely difficult. Yeah, I, I know, trying to think about how to mitigate that damage. And I think that's something that people don't really think about, though, when these, you know, severe weather impacts happen, you know, what happens when the communities are cut off and you can't get to them? You know, how do you transport the people out? You know, looking at the infrastructure and say taking, you know, 80, you know, or 100 people, but I mean, just multiply that. And 
where do you place them? Where do they go? So you need an infrastructure to, you know, be able to take them somewhere safe. And so the work that you're doing is extremely important, you know, doing that type of research. Now, you've been in Iceland for about five years, and you had said to me before that people there are very open and welcoming and more relaxed, which I thought was interesting given the environment there and some of the harsh conditions uh, that, you know, people live in. I was wondering if maybe you could expand on some of your personal observations now that you've had a chance to experience Iceland and the culture there. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's definitely an, an interesting uh, country and interesting and very nice people. And uh, when I said more relaxed, uh, it should, cause, uh, should of course be interpreted in relation to my origin. And uh, <laughs> I think it's not very hard to be more relaxed than, than the average German. So, um, <laughs> But I, but I think there are many more things I observed personally, and uh, even though I'm not that much into generalizations, um, yes, I, I'd like to share some of these observations. Um, you mentioned the extreme weather. Yeah, maybe this explains exactly the relaxed atmosphere. You have to take weather and nature as it is. You cannot change it. There's not much you can do about it. So you won't bring in the hay on a rainy day, but when it's sunny, like today, you work 24-7. And you won't fish in a blizzard, but you will go to the ocean when the weather allows and fish as much as you can then. So maybe this explains a little bit of this kind of relaxed atmosphere, that weather doesn't really matter, that you just take it as it is. And the perception of time in general is definitely different up here, I would say. And yeah, in general, the mindset is very, very different, I think. And you need, you definitely need a different mindset for living in such a sparsely populated region with harsh climates and uh, yeah, I think I think you definitely need this because sometimes you cannot, cannot leave the town for a few days due to an avalanche risk, maybe to terrible road conditions, endless snowstorms, but what would it help to complain, you know? So it's, <laughs> and it doesn't help anybody if you become impatient. So why would you? So maybe this is, this is why people are quite relaxed, I would say, yeah. Well, yeah, no, I agree. I think that that probably is it when they're used to facing those types of conditions. Whereas if you're somebody that can come up and go freely, that if you have any type of inconvenience, then it seems like a big deal. Mm -hmm. But if you're used to dealing with this, you know, your whole life, that maybe it gives you more of that relaxed, uh, a little bit more uh, easygoing attitude. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's what I also wanted to add exactly with this mindset of what I think with being extremely relaxed comes also another observation regarding the mindset. Um, what I really like personally, which makes life here quite, quite nice and relaxed is um, the perception of trial and error. So also, once again, we should uh, see that in relation to my origin in Germany. Uh, in Germany, I observed that the exact opposite perfectionism up to an extent where it hinders innovation, I would say. And uh, I think people here are, have a high tolerance towards failing ideas, failed ideas. I think most Icelanders would not even interpret failure as failure or failed ideas, but as a part of a learning process, which I really like. And uh, yeah, so I think in general, it's a quite liberal mindset. Just try and see and try again if it fails. Yeah, and I think that that's really the interesting thing about Iceland is how innovative they have been and have become, and that mindset is something that 
as you have said, you know, other nations need to kind of take a look at and adapt and, you know, bring in some of their principles that we always talk about innovation and failure and then to reiterate, but we don't really practice it as often as we should. And let's talk a little bit now about climate change itself, because many people see events that happen. Uh, I've, I've talked to multiple researchers that see this, where they people see the events that happen, but they don't equate them with climate change. So we talked about the mudslides, and I know that there, there, you know, is this biophysical vulnerability of a place such, you know, hazards can range from short term or sudden events like storms or landslides. You had mentioned the avalanches or floods. And then you have the long term, you know, those long scale processes such as sea level rise and soil erosion and droughts. What are some of the other impacts that you are witnessing, witnessing firsthand? Yeah, yeah. It's it's always tricky in Iceland to to refer to climate change as the main stressor or yeah as as the reason for for the weather that we have. Uh, some things might of course be in the range of extreme event extreme events that you just mentioned or that just occur in that just occur in such a latitude. Um, but what we can observe is the frequency of events, the frequency of severe weather and the changes. It is hard to define what is normal here these days i would say every year brings a new record it seems like, like like the coldest summer the driest summer the wettest summer the warmest winters and then again one of the toughest winters in 25 years like like the one in 2020 uh here in the west at least and even within 24 hours temperatures can go up from minus 10 to plus 10 so we have extreme ranges now and a northerly wind can that brought snow one night turns into a southerly warm wind that brings rain. And um, I think it has never been easy to predict or forecast the weather in Iceland. Uh, but I think now it's almost impossible. And uh, yeah, I think this, this is what we observe. So I think the last winter, just to talk about firsthand experiences, has been very extreme with road closures. So we were not able to, to leave town for several days and in total, it was some weeks and uh, a high frequency of avalanche risk, avalanche warnings. And um, of course, when you talk to the people, it's always a question like, is this a result of climate change? Is it climate change already happening here? Or is it just normal in, in a place like Iceland in this latitude? Yeah. And you know, the whole thing is no matter what people seem, it's those that changing patterns, right? The uh, unpredictability has become even more commonplace. So let's talk a little bit about resilience. And I know that your doctoral work centered on the ability of individuals and communities and systems to adapt, right? Which is the opposite of vulnerability, which determines the degree to which a system is susceptible to and unable to cope with adverse effects. So in your research, you highlighted a community resilience framework. You had mentioned that a little earlier when we just started. And you had six key parameters for community and social resilience. And because they're important, I think we should talk about it and uh, people's behavior regarding resilience to climate change. So your first uh, parameter I found very compelling, and that's the need for people to stay in a particular area because they feel as if they're a part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that people-place connection? Mm. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. People, place, connection, or uh, what we also define our research project now that we started is uh, place attachment or the sense of belonging that people have. And there we talk about the emotional ties to a community, um, but also what you just mentioned or what we just talked about before, being open and welcoming, encouraging and participating in the community. But yeah, so what I think about is like, when you really care about your community, when you have a strong place attachment, a sense of belonging to this community, you will of course do a lot to prevent it, to avoid climate change related disasters or disasters in general or any kind of shock. And so I think this is quite an important parameter for assessing uh, the resilience of the community. So the higher the place attachment is in a certain community, I would say the higher is the resilience, of course, in combination with all the other parameters that we discuss later on. But um, so I think it is it is important that the local community is on board uh, when it comes to protecting these places or a certain place, a certain area. Now, being in higher ed, I feel the next component is key, and that's your <laughs> knowledge, skills, and learning. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about this. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. Um, I, exactly, I, I would totally agree. Um, education is quite important and it's definitely key to resilience building and uh, what we can see in Iceland is that many young people leave the small and remote communities at one point for educational purposes and I would say this is not a problem per se and I think it's not what it's not that many people that spend their entire life in one and the same place it's it becomes more problematic when too many people leave and decide not to go back or what some people call the brain drain. And um, yeah, as I, or I mentioned places before where half the population left and those that are still living in these small places now, they have the burden to innovate and come up with ideas to turn a negative, um, a negative development trajectory around to discover new pathways, but how? And of course, there are people with excellent ideas, but it needs at least some sort of expertise, knowledge um, to develop these ideas further. And I think this is why it's very, very important to bring education to small and remote communities and uh, yeah, to make transitions to new pathways easier or what we call in social geography or what we talk about is path dependency and lock-ins. So when technology and processes related to decisions made in the past, influence later choices in a way uh, of methods, designs, and practices. Past dependency shapes the identity of a place and the dominant form of work, like, like the fish has done in Iceland or the fisheries. And uh, or what we saw in my home region, the idea of a lock-in, they, they appear usually in old industrial branches in which initial strengths based on geography and networks, the industrial atmosphere, the specialized infrastructure, um, interfirm relations and so on turn into barriers to innovation in a way. So if you have this one industry that is so dominant, it doesn't leave really much place for innovation and, and in most cases education as well, which is I think one of the big mistakes that has been done in the past uh, to not diversify local and regional economies and yeah, have it in a way over embedded in, in one particular industry. No, I agree with you. And, you know, when you were talking a little bit early, you had mentioned that sense of community and, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about community networks because they're often taken for granted, but they 
really play such a crucial role in resilience. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, you know, that fluctuation you were talking about. Oh, earlier. yes. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, community networks. I mean, exactly. So it's, it is quite, quite important that you work as a, within a community, but I would also say that networks among several communities are extremely important to uh, increase the resilience of certain places um, that you know whom to go to if you have an innovative idea, if you have a good idea to bring a community forward and um, that, that you have a network of trust within the community, but even more outside the community so that you can connect ideas that you connect can connect to people that um, help you to develop ideas. I think Iceland is quite in a good way when it comes to that, to, to support small and struggling communities um, to change this in a way, to, to help building up networks and um, increase the innovation in, in, in these communities. But what is quite important is the demographic aspects here. So it's, it is very, we have a lot of small communities that are rather male dominated, women are moving out of the communities and um, it's a very aging population in most communities. So it's, it can also be quite close knit. So a network is not always good per se. It, it, it of course has to be open networks that is welcoming to others. And um, this is also what we have in this place attachment, sense of belonging idea. Mm -hmm. uh, so that people wanna be part of this network and, and create new Pathways. It's so interesting when I think about all of the things that like, you know, connect a community and that stable work environment, the social and cultural activities, all of those things that really make a community vibrant and strong. You know, it, it's everything from, uh, you know, artists that you bring into town, um, you know, like you said, the pull factor for new newcomers that can come in and, you know, have that motivation to stay and then they feel like they belong to the place and then the, you know, it, it kind of has that uh, domino effect that kind of goes out to, Absolutely. You know, to build that, yes. you know, that close-knit community. Yes, exactly. So I think uh, one should not or should never underestimate the, the role of culture, that, um, how important it can be. So the one committee that I researched uh, when I tried my resilience assessment toolbox, um, it's in the northwest of Iceland, and they introduced an um, artist residency, and of course it might not have the biggest economic, hard economic impact, you know, but it, it changes the mindset of the community a lot. If you have visiting artists in town and um, this is kind of a, of, of a hub, of a center for the people to, to look at. And uh, it was a very sleepy town before, I would say, with, without being disrespectful to the town. It's, it's a beautiful place, but um, of course this changes a lot. And um, yeah, so it's, um, others might talk about social capital, in this in this regard, but I have not really integrated this terminology to my research. But um, like, what kind of uh, networks do we have in these communities, and how do people work together? It's that's quite important. Yeah, indeed. Now we've had some issues in this area, and I believe it's more important now than ever to also have an engage, engaged governance, right? To have our political leaders and the local business community kind of you know, understand the importance of resilience and the importance of climate change. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that area as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think local leaders is definitely an aspect or a engaging governance in these places. And this is sometimes a bit problematic. I mean, the good thing is Iceland is 
as you said in your introductions, a rather small country in terms of population. So it's quite easy to find people that can help you that are somewhat connected and um, talking about local leaders. I found that in most places and most places that have some sort of um, independence in decision making, um, they had a much easier task to make decisions for their communities, for the municipalities they are in. And it was usually the same two or three people that were the driving of the main hats, the driving, that had the driving ideas. And it's quite important that these people are in a way approachable, that political leaders are approachable and um, yeah, that they have an interest in bringing local business and entrepreneurs forward, that they are open-minded for new ideas. I think this is something we have seen in the past few years, and especially in the last year, that Iceland is putting a lot of um, part of a lot of money into innovative ideas and funds, especially in small communities. And this is, of course, that might be a result of this kind of push from these local leaders in a way. And um, representation and trust are also central central themes in this regard. And uh, the networking abilities and ties between local policymakers and those at the state level can help to foster investments and employment as well at the local level. And um, this is, I think, quite important to, to uh, look at, look into. And uh, yeah, not because what I think is quite important if you think about the structure or about decision-making processes, it's, I think, the small communities, the remote communities should have a certain kind of um, autonomy, some sort of in, independence in decision-making, what people usually call up like bottom-up strategies um, in regards to top-down strategies. But I think it's what the most resilient communities, I would say, are somewhere in between. So in a way, can, what, what I want to refer to as um, top-led, bottom-fed strategies, uh, when it comes to resilience building. So we need, I think, a lot of the local perceptions and local ideas, but it also needs good um, people from the outside that can evaluate, that can help to um, yeah, foster innovation, foster ideas. Yeah, and you know, speaking of, you were just saying about the factor for resilient communities, and we hinted at this earlier, but there needs to be that diverse thought to have an innovative economy. And you were saying to like bring in others Maybe you could you know talk a little bit about that. Uh, I like the uh, like you had said about the bottom up uh, nature. Um, I, you know I work with the Iceland Ocean Cluster, and I have seen how they bring a lot of different different diverse thought in, and they try a lot of different types of new products, and they've built this kind of cluster around uh, you know the fish industry and around cod, and you know maybe we could talk a little bit about the uh, innovative economy, and then also on community infrastructure too, mm -hmm. because I feel like that's something that's extremely important when we talk about, uh, you know, these resilience factors. Oh, absolutely. I think diversification is a key factor for uh, resilient communities. And uh, the main focus here is on different development path and the support of the locals. And we started this uh, podcast with talking about industrial areas, Detroit, the Rust Belt, my hometown, but also Iceland and the fishing industry. And uh, it all ends up basically about mono, mono dependent areas. And we talked about lock-ins, path dependency, 
embeddedness in a way. And yeah, it's it's never good to be dependent on on the decisions and developments of just one industry or in Iceland of maybe one individual who has the quotas, who had the quotas. And um, one tends to forget this in good times, you know, so that when you see, you don't want to hear the warning voice, like we should not be too dependent on this one, one industry. And um, of course, if it's going up, it's wonderful, but um, it can easily go down once uh, this one key economic sector is closing down or decreasing. And um, for that diversification is definitely key. And I think Iceland is on a good way in this in this regard. Um, of course, we have very small communities, maybe 500 people, 1000 people here and there. So it's, it's quite difficult. And as I said before, a lot of people move out and do not necessarily come back. So who will bring innovation to these places? But yeah, I think we will, we can all agree that it is in a way key. And um, interesting that you mentioned the Icelandic Ocean Cluster. I think they do really good work. Um, and I think the Icelandic Ocean Cluster has been in a way one driving force behind the idea of shifting the focus from purely quantitative extractive fisheries to more quality oriented or a combination of both, making the most of the extremely valuable resource that is basically in the ocean surrounding us, right? And to turn what has been thrown away before into high quality products afterwards. So make use of all the, of all the fish, of all the resources that we have on offer. And, and I think we have really, really good examples all over the country. And I think this should and probably will be the future, I think of very diversified economies in, in or around Iceland. At least I, that's what I hope. And I think this would be, this would be key in bringing people back to the communities and then making them more resilient from individual decisions. Yeah, no, I agree. And yeah, I love the model as well. And I'm hoping that more and more companies will follow that model where there is no waste. There's nothing, you know, of the fish that goes to waste. And that mimics nature mm -hmm. itself because nature has no waste. You know, things decompose and they go back into the earth and feed, you know, the next seed that comes up. And it's only man that has created this waste. Um, you know, I have to say, when I was reading your research, you used a quote that I love uh, from 1971. It was Rousseau, I believe. And you had, uh, I'm going to read okay. it only because I, <laughs> when I, <laughs> when I was reading it, I was like, oh, I really have to have this on the show as well. You wrote the first man who, having enclosed a piece of ground, bethought himself of saying, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the real founder of civil society. For how many crimes, wars, and murders, for how many horrors and misfortunes, might not anyone have saved mankind by pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditch and crying to his fellows, beware of listening to this imposter. You are undone if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong to us all and the earth itself to nobody. I, I have to tell you, I love that. And then you wrote, I do not think that just because the imposters weren't stopped, the people of Iceland are undone. Reclaiming resources and contesting inequality is not at all an impossible task. And I thought this was a, this is a great segue into the last thing that I want to touch upon because every episode I always end with a message of hope. And so what would you say 
is your message for those that are listening? You know, what is your message of hope? Oh, I, I love that you bring in the uh, Rousseau quote. It's, it's a really nice one. I, I mean, it's a great, it is great. I mean, cause, you know, people don't think about it, but it no. is true, right? Oh, the yes. earth is... It belongs to us all. It, it doesn't does. belong I, to. It should. You know. <laughs> yeah. No. So I. So I, <laughs> so I had to use it. I had to. It was wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. What's well, a positive note? Yeah. That's that shouldn't be too difficult. I would say. I think um, when you look at this um, this rock in the ocean here in the North Atlantic, as some might call it, um, this rock has been inhabited since 872, and people somehow managed, they, they have inhabited it ever since, this windy, icy piece of rock and for more than a thousand years now. And people have withstood avalanches, volcanic eruptions. And yeah, now we are facing climate change or the, the, um, the impact of it. And I think, I think I trust people here and I think the ideas here um, that there will always be a solution to it. And um, you know, I think we, I might be sometimes a bit critical about Iceland and, and, and the, the politics here, but I think in general, I would say people here are doing a good job in most times and uh, we'll always find a solution. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. So I think, yeah, otherwise people would not have survived here for such a long time. If they weren't kind of innovative and uh, willing to, to in a way, continue living here on this rather oh, sometimes un, uh, unhospital island. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Uh, it, the conditions there can be extreme, mm -hmm. but it is extraordinarily beautiful. And I thank you for that message of hope, Matthias. And I appreciate you being here and you continuing the work that you have done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, it's listeners like you, our ocean stewards and citizen scientists. You are the ones helping us make a difference by using your voice. The time for action is now, so please take a few minutes today to write a letter or email a member of your Congress in support of action on climate change. Make it personal, have a call to action, include your contact information. We need to hold our leaders accountable. It's that simple, it doesn't take much time, and it makes a big difference. If you would like to donate to future Frogmen, or if there is a topic you would like for us to touch upon, or a guest speaker you would like us to have on the show, please feel free to contact us at info at futurefrogmen.org or visit our website. Thank you for joining us today, and please spread the word as we work to improve ocean health by deepening the connection between people and nature. <laughs>